Well, this is obviously a unpleasant story. Basically, what happens is Jacob and his family go and settle in this city called Succoth. And Dinah goes out. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But she goes out of the house and she's in the city or whatever. And basically, the prince of the city or one of the princes of the city rapes her. And understandably, her brothers are incensed about it. The prince of the city, the king of the city, Hamor, come to negotiate with Jacob. The negotiation is callous. After all, Shechem has just raped Dinah. And in fact, more, more than just being a rape, it's like a rape and a kidnapping. Because she's still in his house. Verse 26 manifests that. It says, They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Was Dinah party to this? Like she went out in the city and she wanted to be with Shechem and she wanted to live in his house? No. Listen to the way that it's described. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Verse 2. And then obviously won't let her leave his house. So basically, Shechem's done something despicable and evil. Uh, Something really... Scary. We read about instances where someone has maybe kidnapped someone and kept them in their basement and basically used them and abused them for years and years while they've just gone missing to the general public. But meanwhile, this pervert has kept someone to be their own object of gratification. This is something akin to that. This is obviously a very evil thing. Shechem does seem to have some sort of maybe feelings for her beyond simply sexual attraction, but that doesn't justify, obviously, what he's done to her. Uh, If your rapist has feelings for you, it doesn't change the fact that it's still rape. So obviously this is very evil, what has happened. But Shechem and Hamor basically come to Jacob and they're like, hey, listen, it it will be financially profitable if you settle here and you know you can you can own land and we can trade and Shechem's like and why don't you just name your bride price like I'll give anything so they're basically coming saying like let's settle this financially like something's happened here but I'm sure we can work out something I was um, just out of um somewhat of coincidence and somewhat of personal interest reading and watching some stuff about the Italian mafia in America this past week and this kind of negotiation almost resembles like something you would expect to happen in or among the mafia something really evil has happened but let's sit down and have a conversation about it and let's work out something with money this is the kind of situation here So what are we to make of this story? 
Well, to give a little bit of background, Jacob shouldn't be in Succoth in the first place. Jacob should have gone from where he was with his uncle Laban straight to Bethel. In Genesis 28, verses 20 to 22, over 20 years ago when Jacob was leaving Canaan, he made a vow to God to the effect that Bethel would become his family's place of worship. Listen. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. In Genesis 31 and verse 13, the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. It's not stated explicitly, but a clear implication of this is that now the time has come for Jacob to stop sojourning with his uncle Laban and return to his own land, namely to Bethel, where he had made a vow to the Lord that that would be the place where he would worship Yahweh. Jacob really should be obeying the spirit of the Lord's command to return to Canaan. God appears to him as the God of Bethel, where you made a vow to me. Now go back to your land. He really should be on his way to Bethel. I don't know if you caught it last week when we read it, or tonight when we read it, but Jacob lies to Esau in Genesis 33, verses 15 to 17. Remember, he's traveling from the north, southward, and Seir is further south, where Esau lives. Succoth is to the west, and Bethel is further west. So Jacob's traveling southward, Esau comes up to meet him, and then Esau says, come on, let's travel together back to Seir. And Jacob says, no, no, the herds and the children can't travel that fast. Esau basically says, well, let me leave some people with you to protect you while you make your way south to Seir. And Jacob says, let, in verse 14, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir, which was further south. And then we read, in verse 17, But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, which is west. So Jacob lies to his brother that he's going to come, he's just going to come a little more slowly. And he goes in a completely opposite direction once he has gone and goes west to Succoth. But Bethel was further west than Succoth. Succoth was kind of in, it was in the land of Canaan, but it was kind of toward the edges of Canaan. Succoth was a city, an urban center, whereas Bethel was rural. Remember when Jacob was leaving 20 years ago and he came to Bethel, he laid down with a stone for a pillow in the middle of nowhere, and this is where he sees a vision. 
Bethel's out in the country, but Succoth is an urban center. Jacob's wrong for settling in Succoth on two counts. Before, actually, before I give you those two counts, let me just emphasize the point that he does intend to settle in Succoth. He's not just passing through here on his way to Bethel. In verse 18 of chapter 33, it says, From the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. You don't buy land where you're just passing through or on vacation. You don't go on vacation to another country and buy a parcel of land. Jacob intends to put down some roots in Succoth. And he's wrong on two counts to do that. One is, he's lied to his brother Esau about his intentions. You shouldn't say to someone you're going one place and then go another. But more than that, he's wrong because he should actually be going to Bethel. He should have told his brother, I can't go with you to Seir. I have to go to Bethel. I have an appointment with God in Bethel. But he lied to his brother. And then he stopped short of what God requires him to do, which is make his way to Bethel. So Jacob is disobedient to God and Jacob deceives his brother. What's underneath this? Why does he deceive his brother? Why does he disobey God? I believe that it's worldliness. Jacob is making decisions in a worldly manner. We'll see this play out in the rest of the text. But Jacob is operating here pragmatically again, as he's done in many instances throughout his life. Getting into an argument with his brother who has 400 armed men with him isn't something that he wants to do. Never mind the fact that the Lord has told him that he's going to prevail over his brother. And the Lord has changed his brother's heart to be favorable towards him, as we saw. Esau has responded magnanimously when he could have done otherwise. Still, Jacob isn't going to be confrontational about the fact that he's not going to see it. He's going westward into Canaan. And then Jacob presumably wants the pragmatic benefits of city life versus the rural life in Bethel. Obviously, we know about that even in our day and age. There are certain advantages to being in the city. More opportunities, more employment, easier travel, easier trade, easier commerce. Presumably, this is why Jacob wants to settle in Succoth. As the passage goes on, we see that he lets his daughter wander about, she's probably about 15 maybe, at this time, give or take. He lets his daughter wander around in the city. It doesn't seem like a really wise idea. But presumably this is what all the other girls are doing. In verse 30, chapter 34 and verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. 
I guess this is what the a lot of the women in the land were doing was wandering around to a fro, spending time together. Presumably Jacob doesn't want to be different. He doesn't want his house rules to be different than the house rules of his neighbors. And so he doesn't restrain his daughter Dinah. But we should recall that the Lord has made a distinction between the children of Abraham and the people of Canaan. And he doesn't want there to be too much of an intermixture. And so Jacob should be trying to preserve some distinction. He, sh- he shouldn't be permitting his daughter to intermix and intermingle with the Canaanites in such a free fashion. And then she's raped. And there seems to be incredible apathy and passivity in response at least passivity but I think apathy too you remember when well maybe you won't remember if you've never read the story but I think many of us have later on in Genesis which we'll get to when Jacob thinks that Joseph has been killed how he responds Genesis 37 and verse 34 or 33 Jacob identified the robe and said it is my son's robe a fierce animal has devoured him Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days you read nothing like that Here in Genesis 34. It seems that Jacob has a worldly mindset about the disparity of value among his children. The way that the world plays favorites. Instead of seeing that children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Jacob's playing favorites here. Then there's a passivity. He hears that they had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And then they come and they negotiate with Hamor and Shechem. Why are the sons negotiating and not the father? Jacob seems here to be unduly apathetic and unduly passive then at the end of this whole escapade so his daughter's been raped and his sons have deceitfully slaughtered basically the whole town Jacob's concern is you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Perizzites my numbers are few and if they gather themselves against me and attack me I shall be destroyed both I and my household He doesn't seem to be concerned about the intrinsic rightness or wrongness of what has been done to Dinah. He doesn't seem to be concerned about the intrinsic rightness and wrongness of what Simeon and Levi have done. He's basically, in this passage it seems, pretty much thinking about what's in it for him, what his interests are, 
it seems like he's thinking in a very, very worldly way. God's value system seems to be far from him in this chapter. It's interesting that in 33 and in 35, God's name is mentioned, but in 34? Nope. That may be a literary device to show us that this is a period of wandering, backsliding in Jacob's life. Even though he's coming off the heels of a learning experience, a growing experience, and a chapter in which he's actually an example to us of prevailing by grace. This seems to be a chapter where he's backsliding and we've got old Jacob before us yet again. Jacob seems to have a very worldly attitude here. What's in it for me? What matters to me matters. What matters to God is secondary. If it doesn't matter to me, who cares if it matters to God? That sort of thing. Temporal circumstances in Genesis 34 seem to matter more to Jacob than his relationship to God or his family's relationship to God. Jacob in this chapter employs worldly means to achieve worldly ends. And he seems to have a worldly value system. Unsurprisingly, in this chapter, we also see the worldliness of Jacob's children. This ought to be a caution to us as parents that our children will often imbibe the value system that we're operating within or that we operate with. If we value worldly things and we use worldly means to get worldly things, it's most likely that our children will do the same. It's most likely that they won't value the things of God. Where conversely, we can make a strong impression upon them by valuing spiritual things and by operating in a godly way instead of a worldly way. So where do we see the worldliness of Jacob's children? Possibly in Dinah. As I've already mentioned, she went out to see the women of the land. That's somewhat of a cryptic phrase, and we're probably far enough removed from the culture that it's hard for us to make an exact value statement of whether she did something right or wrong or neutral in this instance. The scripture generally um, speaks of uh, the domain or the sphere of women as being the home. It generally speaks of uh, the godly woman not straying far from the home, so to speak. Um, It's possible that Dinah is acting in a way that's not feminine in a godly sense. And that she's doing what the women of the land do, which is ungodly. So it's possible that Dinah is doing something ungodly and something worldly in this passage. Commentators are divided on this. Even if she is being worldly though, this is not blaming her for the rain. This is just demonstrating that there may be a certain worldliness even in Dinah. But certainly we see worldliness in Simeon and Levi. Now, we can't condemn them wholesale. They get the last word here. 
in Genesis 34, and the narrator doesn't rebuke them, doesn't correct them. Jacob doesn't answer them, neither does the narrator. Jacob says, why have you brought all this trouble on me? You're going to create a problem for our family. And they say, but should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And then that's it. The story moves on. Which seems to indicate that there was something right about their response. Certainly they had a righteous cause to be angry. There's certainly something unjust was done. And in that day and age, what do you do? Phone the police? You understand that there had there had to be there had to be some justice meted out in this sort of way in those days. Where one clan or one family, one tribe would execute some kind of vengeance upon another when an injustice was done. Because there's no real third party that you can appeal to in a situation like this. So they had a righteous cause. They probably wouldn't have been wrong to kill Shechem, possibly even Hamor, for this. And yet there's something wrong about what they do. And I think that the scripture passes judgment on them in Genesis 49. When Jacob calls his sons together and speaks an oracle over them just before his death. He says in Genesis 49, 5-7, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, before you say, well, these are just Jacob's words, this is just his opinion, it seems that he's prophesying here, because he goes on to speak of the scepter not departing from Judah in verse 10, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Which seems to be a clear prophecy of the Lion of Judah, the son of David, who will come and reign over all. And so it seems here that Jacob, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is prophesying in this section and passing judgment upon Simeon and Levi's actions. So it's probably not black and white. It's probably gray. They had righteous cause to be angry and righteous cause to take some vengeance. And yet what we see was that they take vengeance in a worldly way. There's worldly excess. In God's law, we read that punishment is to be meted out an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That sounds like, to our ears, maybe a harsh system of punishment, but actually what it's intended to be is a fair system of punishment. It's intended to instill in the nation of Israel the principle that the punishment should fit the crime. And that there shouldn't be a punishment that's excessively harsh, nor should there be a punishment that's excessively light. We don't look the other way when something wrong happens. 
but we don't overreact and do something that's far more drastic than the original offense. Justice is to be in proportion and in measure as God's justice is. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. But that doesn't mean that He flies off the handle and punishes excessively that which is sinful. But God's justice is perfectly measured. And so justice on earth ought to be, ideally, perfectly measured also. There's the excess, the excess here that's so typical of the world. Simeon and Levi respond as any angry brother would. Simeon and Levi respond not with measured justice, but with immoderate rage, with immoderate anger. And they use worldly means, unrighteous worldly means, to accomplish their ends. They deceive. Where do you think they learned to deceive? From Jacob, their father. Again, parents, we don't believe in generational curses in, that, in the sense that if you keep committing a sin over and over, you need to go to a deliverance session and break generational curses so that you stop doing these things because some spirit has you bound and so on and so forth. We don't take that view of sanctification here at CRBC. But there is a, a sense in which the sins of the father have generational effects. The sins of the mother have generational effects. And often it takes generations, even sometimes generations of Christians, to, to at least mute, if not to undo and reverse the patterns of sin that have been prevalent in a family for years and generations past. So we see worldliness in Simeon and in Levi. We see that though they have a righteous cause, there's a worldly excess in their vengeance. And there's worldly means employed in the taking of that vengeance. They trick these guys. In fact, this is a very bad trick. Because remember, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. And so this would be like if if I got really angry and wanted to kill someone's family and I said to them, well, I'm a Baptist and you got to be baptized. Right? And then so then while they go down into the tank, I hold them under. Or whether they go down into the sea, I hold them under. You, can, you see how twisted that is? But they're doing something, they're doing something akin to that. In this section, they're using the sign of the covenant to kill and to murder. And so there's something really, really evil going on here. Something really, really worldly. Not so much unlike their father, who remember when Isaac asked, How did you find the game so quickly? Jacob lied and said, The Lord gave me success. He used the Lord's name to cover up His wickedness. 
something really, really evil, something really, really worldly going on here in this section. So we see the worldliness of Jacob and his children here in this passage and the destruction that it causes in this instance. Jacob settling in Succoth has disastrous consequences for his family. The immoderate rage of Simeon and Levi has disastrous consequences for the people of Succoth, obviously. It may be right that Shechem should die, possibly even Hamor, who was an unrighteous king and didn't reign in his son, nor did he execute justice on Shechem when he should have. But the whole city shouldn't have died for that offense. And so we see here a lot of collateral damage because of Jacob's worldliness and because of the worldliness of his children. This passage reinforces what we ought to know from other passages of Scripture already. That it's not a good idea to cozy up to the world. To strike up partnerships. To employ the world's methods. To imbibe the world's value system. These things are not a good idea. And there's often significant collateral damage when we become worldly. We see that illustrated vividly in Genesis 34. So a couple of takeaways. One is keep the world at arm's length. When I say the world, I hope you know I don't mean the grass growing outside the church in the air that we breathe, and that we long for some immaterial existence outside of this physical universe. I hope you know I don't mean that. But I'm talking about the sphere, or the domain, or the culture of sinful humanity. The world that will perish apart from Christ. But the world which God loved by sending His Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Keep yourself at arm's length from that world. Love it as God so loved it. But don't love it the way that the Apostle says do not love the world. Love it, but don't love it. Don't be in love with it, but love it in action. Serve it. Even as we talked about this morning, considering the theme of evangelism, seek to win it. Care for it. Don't slaughter it as Simeon and Levi did. But engage with it. Be in the world. As Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. But keep them in it. 
Be in it. But don't be of it. Don't be like the world. Don't imbibe its values. Don't employ its methods. Don't strike up intimate partnerships with those in it. Do not be unequally yoked. It's often quoted in the context of marriage. But do you realize that it has broader application than that? We ought to think twice before striking hands with worldly people. Lest in the context perhaps even of a close business relationship, the culture of our company becomes worldly and we're sucked in and we're drawn along. To do business in a worldly way. Be careful about getting too close, too cozy to the world. Better to settle in the rural Bethel than in the city of Succoth. Better to be a little bit further away and have a little bit more difficulty in doing business than to embrace the ease of doing business with the world by becoming a little bit too close to the world. Keep the world at arm's length. We read at the end of John chapter 2. That Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. There was a caution, even as Jesus came into the world, to love the world, to serve the world. Jesus was careful not to get too cozy with the world. And so we see that in keeping the world at arm's length, we're keeping company with Christ, who was in the world but not of it. Let me read a few verses which I've already alluded to from John chapter 17, verses 14 to 19. Jesus prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, we're supposed to be in it. In fact, we're sent into it. And yet we're not of it. Nor are we supposed to act like we're of it. So there's this tension here, right? Be there, but don't get too cozy. Engage, but engage redemptively. Engage in a certain way. And don't engage in other ways. Keep yourself a little bit separate. So what if the Canaanites think that you're different? So what if they think that you're unlike them? So what if they all settle in Succoth and you live a little bit outside in Bethel? So what? We read... 
in Hebrews 10 and verse 7. That passage from Psalm 40 applied to the Lord Jesus. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jacob's focus was not on doing the will of God and progressing to Bethel. In this instance, Jacob's focus was on temporal gains. Unlike Jacob, Jesus' focus was on doing the will of the Father. Jesus, if he were wearing Jacob's shoes, would have walked past Succoth to Bethel, you understand? In John chapter 4, after that incident with the woman at the well, the disciples bring back some food and urge Jesus to eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. You see, Jesus' focus was not on temporal gains. Jesus' focus wasn't on getting cozy with the world. Jesus' focus wasn't on fitting in with the people around him. Jesus' focus wasn't on the American dream or the Bajan dream. Jesus' focus wasn't on those things. Jesus' focus was on doing the will of God. And it ended up costing him his life. In fact, it not only didn't gain him temporally, but it was a loss for him temporally to do God's will. It may cost you something to walk past Succoth to settle in Bethel. Jesus did that. And as we do that, Though we may lose in a worldly sense, we're keeping company with our Savior. I don't know if you caught it in John chapter 17, but listen to what Jesus says here. In verse 18, or pardon me, verse 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself. Do you know what that means? For their sake, I separate myself. In the context of this passage, I separate myself from whom? The world. The world. It's in the context of that chunk that I just read you a few minutes ago. All about the disciples' separation from the world. Jesus says, for their sake, I separate myself. I consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified or separated. You see, Jesus kept himself from the world for us, for our sake. That we might be forgiven for our worldliness. Jesus separated himself consecrated himself for Jacob 
who did not consecrate himself in order that Jacob might be forgiven. Jesus did the Father's will for Jacob who did not do the Father's will. In order that Jacob's sin might be laid on Jesus and Jesus' obedience might be laid on Jacob. And that Jesus might bear Jacob's guilt to the cross and suffer there for Jacob in order that Jacob might be forgiven for his worldliness. And you can insert your name there. Jesus consecrated Himself for you, Christian, who have not consecrated yourself. In order that His separateness from the world might be laid upon you. And your worldliness laid upon Him. And your worldliness taken to Calvary. In order that the wrath that you deserved to have poured on you would be poured on Him in your stead. So that you could be forgiven for your worldliness. But not only so that you may be forgiven. Jesus says here. So that you also may be sanctified. Or separated. To enable you. To no longer be worldly. To break the power. The dominion of sin in your life. To pour out justly. The blessing of regeneration. Upon you, the new covenant, to justly grant you the Holy Spirit to work in you that which is pleasing to Him. Jesus set Himself apart for your sake so that all the blessings of the new covenant could justly be poured on you, including the transformative blessings of the new covenant so that you wouldn't always be worldly Jesus consecrated himself for your sake that you might also be sanctified or consecrated Jesus says in the very next verse I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You understand that when Jesus was praying these things, He was praying specifically for the disciples in front of Him. But not for their sake only, but for all who would believe in Him through their word. That's us. So keep the world at arm's length. With the ability that Christ won for you by consecrating himself. With the new heart that he's given you in the gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given you through the gospel. Keep the world at arm's length. And do so in the company of Christ. Recognize that as you do that you're in fellowship with him. You're in communion with Christ Jesus. Keep the world at arm's length. Otherwise we risk not only the dishonor to God that our sin always causes, but also the collateral damage 
that we see exemplified so clearly in Genesis 34 as Jacob and his family adopt worldliness. If you would avoid that collateral damage, if you would glorify God, if you would have communion with Christ, keep the world at arm's length with the resources that Christ won for you by His own consecration.